Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter two? We're in Joshua chapter two. We're gonna hear the story of Rahab's conversion. We had the, heard the entirety of the story read, but I just wanna read Rahab's words, which begin in verse nine. Hear now God's word. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Let's pray together. Lord, let us see you as clearly as a Gentile in the city of Jericho did so many years ago. High and lifted up, the God of heaven above and of earth beneath the one true, only surprising, gracious, kind, abiding, eternal God. Reveal yourself to us. Change us because of this view of you. We beg you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning, we're going to tell the story of Rahab's conversion. We're gonna see what God did in her life and how he drew her to himself. And then we're gonna end with just a few minutes talking about how the New Testament reflects upon Rahab's conversion in the Old Testament. So start with the story and then we'll see a little bit of the reflection. Right now we're in the ancient Near East and we're there around the years of somewhere between the 1400s and the 1200s BC. When we say ancient Near East, we mean modern day Israel. We can call this land Israel, Palestine, Canaan in the Bible. But that land is there and it's a very volatile, dangerous place. You've got some world superpowers that are around the land of Canaan. So you have Egypt to the southwest, you've got Assyria and Babylon and the Hittites above and around. But within Canaan, it's just city-states. So entire kingdoms are just one or a group of cities, which is why we heard last week when Joshua came through Canaan, he defeated 31 kings in 31 cities of 31 kingdoms because you've got these small kingdoms that are fighting with each other in the land of Canaan. Let's put a slide up here so we can get a a little visual of where Jericho is. So the people of Israel have come from Egypt through the land of Sinai, up and around the territory of Moab. And then you see them on the east side of the Jordan River, which runs between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea below. And Jericho is right across the Jordan River. So if Israel is going to cross over and begin conquest of this land, she must take Jericho because if she doesn't, then her supply line that's back on the east side of the Jordan River is in danger. It's jeopardized and she can't go on and conquer the land. So Jericho sits there right above the Dead Sea, right across the Jordan River. You can take that down. I didn't realize this or remember this until I read it this week, but Jericho is the oldest known city on earth. It's like 7,000, from 7,000 BC. It's also the lowest city on earth. It's below sea level. 
And so there's been a lot of archeological digging around it. We've seen that it had two walls. It was well defended. It had an exterior and an interior wall and it was a known city to us. And so Joshua, he wants to spy out the defenses of the city. He sends in two spies. And as they do that, they end up lodging with a woman who is introduced to us as Rahab. And the only thing we hear about Rahab, the only thing we learn about her is that she is a prostitute. Now, why would the Bible go and give that little fact to us? Why would it tell us the worst thing about Rahab, the darkest thing in her life at this moment, the fault line of her, and tell us simply that Rahab is a prostitute? I mean, can you imagine being introduced in the Bible as the dark things about you? This is David, and we all know he has an anger problem and a pride problem, and he gained seven pounds over the holidays, and his beard looks like a sheep shearing accident. This is David, you know, he, this is him, you know. I'm so glad I'm not in the Bible for that reason. But enter Rahab the prostitute, and you need to know she's a Gentile prostitute because Jericho is a wicked city full of wicked people. And if you're keeping score of sin and who's the worst, then Rahab is even more wicked than her run-of-the-mill average citizens of Jericho. And while that fact might keep her from hobnobbing in self-righteous religious circles, especially religious self-righteous religious circles, then that makes her a prime recipient in the Bible for God's kind, lavish, surprising, gracious, tender, miraculous love. Because you know Rahab lives where she lives, because you know Rahab has done what she has done, it surprises us and warms our hearts all the more to see this God move towards this woman in love and in grace. What a story. Well, the spies, they're supposed to sneak into the city. They're supposed to get in, spy it out, and then get out with information. That's their only job. But the moment they get into the city, the king knows who they are and that they're there to spy out the land, which makes them terrible spies. And so he goes looking for them. Where are these people that came to spy out our land? They end up at Rahab's house. She lives on the border of the exterior wall. They come in, they find refuge with her, and she takes them up to her roof, which is on top of that wall. And that's where people would have been drying out their flax stalks. And she sticks the spies under there. Then she lies to the guard. She says they're not here. They go away. She's able to lower them down outside of the exterior city wall. They're away, able to get away in safety but not before they have this startling conversation with her. Not before they hear from her that in this entire experience of knowing who's coming, she has thrown her lot with the one true God. She's converted. She tells them what's happening in her. First of all, she says, everybody has heard about the Lord. Okay, you guys are here and you're coming here for the first time, but we already know about you and we already know about God. She says that to us in verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. God's reputation precedes him. These Canaanites, they know something about who is coming and they have a chance to respond to him. 
That's what Romans 10 says works with salvation. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ and the citizens of Jericho have heard that there is a God who is coming who can do these great and miraculous things. They know something about this God. Well, second, she says, not only has everybody heard about this God, everybody has had a chance to react to this God and let the message of this God sink into their own hearts, as she tells us in verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. That makes sense. People hear about this great and powerful God who's able to bring these superpowers to their knees and everybody is terrified. But being scared is not enough for salvation. Don't confuse fear with faith. Being afraid of God and his holiness and his justice and who he is and what he knows about us and the sins that he sees and what he might do against those sins that he sees in our lives is not the same thing as believing and trusting in this God alone for our salvation. Don't confuse fear and faith with each other. I've told this story before, but I had a remarkable, miraculous encounter in the Middle East. I was there on a mission trip. I was there to share the gospel. And as I've been riding the metro through the city, I realized that uh, Muslims would bring Korans and read them on the metro and on their way to work, on their way home from work. And I thought, man, this is great. I should get a Bible and do the same thing. So I got a Bible and it had English on one page and Arabic on the other side. And then I would just read it on the metro, but I'd kind of hold it out from my face so that these people getting on the metro saying, what is this white guy reading and why does it have Arabic? And they'd all kind of huddle in and pretend like they weren't reading what they were obviously reading. And so I'm opening up to John 3 and just kind of holding my Bible out. And, um, and it was great, but I had this one encounter, this guy, the metro stops, a guy jumps on, he's my age. He makes a beeline towards me. He sees me holding this book. I'm ready for him to kind of lean over my shoulder and read. And he said, what are you reading? Is that a dictionary? I said, no, this is the Bible. And he said, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that my bad deeds outweigh my good deeds. And I know that when I die and face Allah, I will be judged and banished forever. He said that in the first two minutes of meeting this guy. That is tremendous. That's a remarkable place to be in his life. That's the groundwork for salvation, but that alone is not salvation. I didn't say, that's wonderful, man. Have a good day. I said, what's your name? And he said, Jesus. And I said, are you kidding me? His name was Isa, which in Arabic is Jesus. And I said, Jesus, let's, I mean, get off at the next stop. We got to get tea. I want to tell you about your namesake, Jesus. James says, you believe in one God, even the devil does, even demons do. They believe that, and what? They shudder. Demons are not just monotheists, they are terrified monotheists. They don't just believe in one true God, they are frightened by one true God. You've got this scene in the Gospels that is totally unnerving. I mean, it just... 
it, it, it scares me a little bit to see this side of Jesus because he shows up in a foreign land and there's a demon-possessed man. We later learn that the demons inside of him are many and so they call themselves legion and Jesus is gonna cast them out. They're gonna go in the pigs and thousands of pigs are gonna run into the water. So maybe this is thousands of demons in this man. Do you remember what the man does when he sees Jesus? Like we see this cute, cuddly savior kind of with a purple sash and a beard walking up to him. Legion throws himself on the ground and says, what are you here to do? Are you going to torment me before my time has come? Did you see that side of Jesus? Thousands of demons at his feet asking, did you just come to play with us and to torture us before you damn us forever outside of your presence? They saw something in Jesus that terrified them because they were, knew they were opposed to him. If this story is true, like what we've read from Genesis to Joshua, it could really be true that God has made this entire world, heaven and earth, and he's made the world specifically so that it could respond to him in worship. That's our highest aim and our greatest being. And if it's true that some of us rebel against God and want nothing to do with him and run from him and live our lives in the way we want to live them, then it is indeed a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jericho hears something about this God who is coming, who judges the nations, and they are scared to death. But it's only Rahab who then, by God's grace in her, turns and responds in faith. I'm going to read it for us, and it's not going to look like much because Rahab hasn't been around the church and She doesn't know Christianese and if she was in worship today, she wouldn't know when to stand and when to sit down and and she wouldn't know that Christians would make a big deal of her lying to the spies because lying is a big deal, but other sins in the church, gluttony, greed, some of those other ones, we don't don't mind those as much. She doesn't know all these things, right? She's She's gonna come to the church and become cynical about the church, but right now, her faith just sounds like a child. It just sounds like a little child seeing something miraculous and responding with the only words she knows how. And this is what she says in verse 11. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I've seen him and I'm with you. That God, he is God. We had gods in Jericho They are no longer gods to me. It is this God who is God. It's confusing in the Old Testament how people come to faith because they don't yet know about Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. And sometimes we think salvation comes by works in the Old Testament and grace in the New Testament. But salvation in the Old Testament was repenting of our sin and trusting in Yahweh God alone for our salvation to rescue us from our sin. 
which is the same thing as salvation in the New Testament, now with a fuller understanding of Christ, to repent of our sins, to trust in Yahweh God alone for our salvation, as comes to us in the person of Jesus who takes our sin on himself, gives us his righteousness that we might be saved and rescued from our sin. Rahab does that. She acknowledges that and she is drawn into God's family. Before the spies leave, they give her a sign. And I wonder if you notice the symbolism of the sign that they give to her. Stop me when this sounds familiar. But the spies say to Rahab, okay, we're gonna do something. We're gonna leave. And then to protect you, I want you to take a scarlet cord, a red cord, and I want you to put it on the frame of your window so that when we see red on the window frame, we will pass over your house and we will exact judgment on Jericho, but you and your family will be spared. Didn't we just see that in the book of Exodus and the 10th plague, the Passover? When God says to the people of Israel, put blood on the doorposts and when I see the sacrificial lamb, I will pass over your house and I will exact judgment on the people of Egypt. This is a mini Passover that is now being reenacted for Rahab and for her family. It's beautiful. Rahab is saved. She's spared. Now we get her story here in Joshua 2 and then it finishes in Joshua 6 and and then she's actually never again mentioned in the Old Testament. We lose track of her. But Matthew chapter one brings her back up and tells the rest of her story that after she's delivered from Jericho, she joins the people of Israel and she goes on and she meets a man who's from the tribe of Judah and his name is Salmon. And together they have a son named Boaz who actually goes on and marries another Gentile convert named Ruth. And they have kids together. Their grandson's name is Jesse and his son's name is David. And David, of course, becomes the king of Israel as we're gonna read in the book of 1 Samuel. And then this royal line of Judah that was promised in Genesis that is now being enacted in this book of Joshua and carries all the way through, eventually sees the birth of the king of kings, Jesus himself. That makes Rahab the great, great, great bunch of greats, grandmother of our Savior Jesus. God sees fit to use a prostitute from Jericho to save her and then use her to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's remarkable. Now, that's a beautiful story here in Joshua chapter two, but I wanna just briefly, just in a few minutes, look to the New Testament to say, what did they see? When they looked back on Rahab and her conversion, what did they glean from her? What did they learn as they heard and celebrated the story of what God had done in this woman's life? And there's actually, outside of Matthew, only two other references to Rahab. There's one in Hebrews and one in James, and both writers end up seeing opposite sides of the same coin of the Christian life of Rahab. Hebrews sees faith and James sees works. Same woman, they're seeing different things. Now we're just coming out of the Christmas season. Has anybody, did anybody watch White Christmas this year? Does anybody watch that every year? 
Literally nobody in this room. Okay, thank you too for doing that. Thank you, Caleb. I needed that. Um, for you two, this is, you'll understand this. There's this great scene in The White Christmas where uh, these two singers, performers, Bob and Phil, they're at a club and they see these um, two women, sisters, singing, performing a song. This is an old movie. Um, and they're up there, they're singing the Haynes sisters. And the two brothers are just, or the two friends are smitten with the sisters. But they're each in love with their own sister and they're watching them, and one of the friends says to the others, I mean, do you see these girls? And he says, yes, I do. Look at those beautiful brown eyes. And the other guy says, no, they're blue eyes. And the other guy says, no, they're brown. Oh, he sees who he's looking at. Yeah, blue, deep, deep blue eyes. Yeah, she's beautiful. This connection is bizarre on so many levels, but... <laughs> I see the writer to the Hebrews and James sitting in a smoky cocktail lounge together and watch Rahab walk through the halls of salvation history and Hebrews says, look at the faith that that woman has and James says, no, I see works. I see works in this woman. That's what they each look and reflect upon. In the book of Hebrews, the writer places Rahab in the hall of faith, that sacred celebrated hall of faith. The writer to the Hebrews skips over Joshua, who we made such a big deal about last week. He doesn't even mention Joshua. He skips Joshua to get to Rahab and says, when I see this woman, I put her among the likes of Abraham and Sarah and Moses and I see faith. Hebrews 11.31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You look at Rahab, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, and you see what faith is like. Faith is casting your lot, banking your life on God alone for salvation. I see Rahab and I'm reminded of faith. But James says, not so fast. James is writing to a totally different church in a totally different context, and he sees something different in the life of Rahab that fits the context of where he is. He's writing to a church community that has a flat faith. It's a church group who they're here, they recite the Apostles' Creed, they say something about it, they nod their heads in agreement, and then they walk out the door and live exactly like the world does. And James is incensed by that, and he writes to them, faith without works is dead. You can't say you believe something and, and subscribe to something and then not do anything about it. Your life is no different. The way you spend your money is no different. The way you live is no different. The way you treat your neighbors is no different. That is impossible and I will prove it to you from the Bible. Look at the story of Rahab. James chapter 2 verse 25 was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? She believed in the one true God, but that's not all. She proved it. Now, when James says she's justified by works, he doesn't mean that she earned her salvation by works. He's not saying she lived this life of sin and rebellion against God and then she did this one kind thing to the spies and so God said, that good outweighs this bad, you're justified by your works. That's not what he means at all. 
When he says justified, he means her faith is validated by, her faith is proven by her works. Rahab's faith had legs. It was a trust that was in motion. It no sooner affirmed that God is God of heaven and earth than it began to live as such in God's created world under his brilliant and beautiful design. Rahab doesn't tell the spies, yeah, yeah, I believe in your kind of God. Now get out of my house. She does something about it. It motivates her and moves her to respond in faith. And James says, that's works. That's good works. Which means that we as the church today can look back on Rahab and do the same as the New Testament writers. We can be reinvigorated in our relationship with God. We can be reminded that just like Rahab, he is willing to reach down into our midst. No matter who we are, what our story is, where we've come from, what we've done, what we think that we wouldn't want anybody to possibly know about us and draw us out in salvation like he does Rahab. And it will be a salvation that moves, a salvation that lives, a salvation that has legs and changes the way we live in the world. That's the gift that God gives to the church through the person of Rahab. Let's pray together. Jesus, what a gift indeed that we might know that we can come to you in our sin and our shame and receive your forgiveness. You are gracious and kind to us that you forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and you give us a faith that has legs. It's gonna get out and go out from here and it's going to be bent into your will because you are changing us by one degree of glory to another. We praise you for this in Jesus' name, amen.